Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. If you're using the, the black Bibles, that can be found on page 1016. Our study through Peter's first epistle here has brought us to chapter 3, verse 18. And if you recall, we're in a section of Peter's letter where he's encouraging those who are suffering. And last week, Peter encouraged the suffering Christians to have no fear of their persecutors. Why? Because God Almighty is on their side. He's on the side of his people. God has blessed them with an eternal inheritance. And he is sovereignly working through their circumstances to sanctify them. Therefore, Christians should have an unshakable hope and they should live with an unshakable hope even as they face suffering and persecution and trials. And when unbelievers then ask, when God moves in unbelievers' hearts to ask, what is the reason for your hope? How can you be living with such joy, with such hope, with such peace in, in the midst of this chaotic world, in the midst of all that you're going through, when unbelievers ask, then there is an opportunity for us to, to testify to Christ, to tell people, Jesus is the reason. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my joy because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. So what a wonderful opportunity we have. And even suffering itself is a, is a platform to display the glory of Christ. Our righteous suffering. In other words, especially suffering unjustly. Suffering for the sake of, the, of identifying with Christ. That gives us opportunity to exalt the name of Jesus. So no wonder our passage last week ended with this verse. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Today, then, as we come to verse 18 of chapter 3, God's word continues to encourage Christians to persevere faithfully, especially in the midst of unjust suffering. And the way God's word will do that is by pointing us to the person and work of Christ. So our passage today is 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. And I'd ask the congregation to, to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Let's hear the word of the Lord together now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Amen. 
How can Christians persevere with joy through the trials of this life? How can believers endure suffering, even endure unjust suffering, and yet continue to faithfully follow Christ and even returning good for evil? How can people do that? Well, we know it's the power of God, right? It's not us. It's it's the Spirit of God. It's the power of God doing that in us. And specifically, what we'll see today is the Spirit will be working that in us by helping us to realize and to believe and to rejoice in the fact that our suffering is temporary. Yes, the suffering is hard and it hurts and, and it's unjust. But our suffering is temporary. And like I said, Peter's going to point us to the person and the work of Christ. And Jesus is our example of persevering in suffering. But we'll see he's more than an example. He's also our Savior because his suffering and death purchased our eternal salvation. His suffering and death is what purchased our rescue from suffering. And so, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, remembering what he accomplished for us, and recognizing, this is what we'll talk about today, recognizing that just as Christ's suffering led to his vindication and glory, in other words, his suffering was temporary, and just as that is true for him, we have the same glorious future awaiting us. And so the title of the sermon today is Suffering Now, But Glory is Coming. Suffering Now, But Glory is Coming. Again, today our text is verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter 3. And you might have noticed as we read it, there's a couple of parts in there that are a little tricky, right? Nevertheless, the main point of the passage is clear. As Christians, we will experience suffering now. But we can take heart because one day our suffering will be over. We will be vindicated and experience glory forever. That's that's the main point of the passage. And we know that is true of us. We know that is our destiny because that is what Christ experienced. And we follow in his steps. Again, his suffering is what has secured our future glory. Suffering now, but glory is coming. This passage is meant to encourage us in the midst of our suffering with the truth that one day suffering will be over. One day it'll be glory. It'll be peace. It'll be joy. It'll be enjoying Christ. So today we're going to organize our study of verses 18 through 22 around two headings. You'll see that in your notes there in the bulletin if you care to take notes. The trail Christ blazed and the picture God gives. Those are our two headings today. So first let's consider the trail Christ blazed. What is that trail? What was his path? Well, if you want to jot these down, here are the the three Uh, blanks there suffering death and then glory 
As you look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the path he walked. Suffering, death, but then vindication and glory. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 18 here is, a, is one of those uh, places in the Bible that just summarizes the gospel in one verse. And I love that, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 is another one, right? But what a great summary we have here. And I'll get to the last phrase in a moment of, of verse 18, but... The, the rest of verse 18, in it we see the gospel. We see, matter of fact, the beautiful doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's a phrase we need to know as believers. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement refers to the covering of sins that produces reconciliation. Or you could say the payment of sins that produces reconciliation. And Christ's death was an atonement for sins. Look at verse 18 again. Christ suffered once for sins. That's why he suffered. That's why he died. For sins. Jesus laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. So yes, his death was an atonement and his death was a substitutionary atonement because Jesus suffered in the place of sinners. That verse 18 says that beautifully too, doesn't it? For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here it is. The righteous for the unrighteous. Who's the righteous there? Who is it? Jesus, right? Who's the unrighteous? Us. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was sinless. He had obeyed the law of God perfectly for 33 years as a man. And then his sinless life is what made him a perfect and acceptable sacrifice for sins. So Christ's suffering and death on the cross paid the penalty for the sins of the unrighteous, for the sins of his people, for the sins of all who would believe in him. And so, again, what was Jesus doing? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it just an example of love? Was it just an example of sacrifice? No. Yes, it is those things, but it was far more. His suffering and death on the cross was an atonement for sins. His suffering and death on the cross was a sacrifice for sins, for the sins of his people. Christ's suffering and death on the cross paid the penalty for the sins of his people. There as Jesus bore our sins on the cross, God the Father poured out his holy wrath on Christ. God is a holy God and his justice demands that sins be punished. And Christ willingly bore that punishment. He bore the punishment of his people. While on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his father. He was cut off from the father's love and instead experienced the father's unmitigated wrath and anger. As he judged those sins that Christ was bearing. Christ's sacrifice fully paid for the sins of his people. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. He atoned for their sins. 
Our sins that separated us from God were covered and removed by Christ's perfect sacrifice. That's why I love how it says he suffered once for sins, right? And it also says Christ brings us to God. (laughs) That's what he accomplished. Through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are no longer God's enemy. We are adopted into God's family. We are now his dearly loved child. No longer guilty in our sins, we are declared righteous in God's court. Christ's sacrifice fully paid for our sins. Oh, rejoice, loved ones. Rejoice, Christians, that it says he suffered once for sins. No more suffering is needed. No more atonement is needed. No more payment is needed for our sins. Christ's sacrifice fully satisfied God's wrath against all of our sins. Praise God. And the proof of that is that that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's how we know that his sacrifice paid for all of our sins. We we learned this and we're talking about this last Sunday night at, at our young adult study. That the resurrection was the Father's stamp of approval on Christ's sacrifice. Right? Jesus was paying the penalty for our sins. And the resurrection is God the Father declaring, it's been paid in full. (laughs) No more judgment left. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who by, by faith are united to Christ will never face God's wrath. Praise God. And the last part of verse 18 speaks of Christ's resurrection. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now we need to understand what Peter is saying here. We need to especially understand those two words. What Peter means by these two words, flesh and spirit. Okay? Spirit here in verse 18 does not mean the opposite of physical. He's not saying, well, Christ was made alive spiritually. No. We know, remember, Christ's resurrection was physical. Christ's resurrection was bodily. The risen Jesus was not just some spirit floating around. He rose from the dead in a perfect, glorified, physical body. So when Peter says Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, flesh and spirit describe two realms, or two spheres, if you like. In verse 18 here, flesh describes the realm of this fallen world. The realm of of suffering. (laughs) The realm of, of death. That's flesh. And then spirit describes the new creation. The realm of power. The realm of vindication. The realm of new life. Yes, Jesus was put to death in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, entered into this fallen world, this realm of suffering and death, and he walked that path all the way to the end. He suffered and died on the cross. But the good news is Jesus conquered that realm. He victoriously rose from the dead, and not in a body that would die again. Right? I was thinking about Lazarus, you know, how God raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and that was a you know, great demonstration of his power. And, and, and that was the context. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Praise God. But, you know, Lazarus had to die again. <laughs> you know, he was in a body that was still in this old realm. That was still battled sin and sickness and death. But Christ's body was not like that. No, Jesus rose 
from the dead in a glorified body. He rose from the dead in the new realm, in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of the new creation. That's what that means. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Christ's resurrection, get this. Christ's resurrection was his victory over that old realm, and his resurrection was the kickstart to the new creation. So Jesus walked the path of suffering and death and glory. We, verse, the end of verse 18, we see the glory of resurrection, the glory of, of victory over that old realm. And then in verses 19 and 20, we see the glory of his victory over the demonic host. That's what Peter's describing here in verses 19 and 20. The glory of Christ's victory over the demonic hosts. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I know that verses 19 and 20 are a little obscure, but the main point to understand is that these verses describe Christ's victory over the demonic host. So, we'll, we'll, let me... Ex- do my best to explain them. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed. In which, that refers back to verse 18, made alive in the spirit. Christ being raised in a glorified physical body. So verse 19, Jesus is the subject. He's preaching. He's proclaiming. When is he doing that? He's doing that after his resurrection. Verse 18 just talked about his resurrection. So after his resurrection, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, some people say, well, spirits, what is that? Does that mean the spirits of men? Or does that mean uh, angels, or in this case, fallen angels? Every time in in the New Testament that that word spirits is used by itself, it refers to angels. When it wants to talk about men, it'll say spirits of men or, you know, the spirits of the righteous, if it's talking about a particular group of men or something, okay? So here Peter gives no other qualification. He just says spirits. So I think that likely means that he is talking about angels. In this case, fallen angels. He's likely referring here to fallen angels, angels that verse 20 said, send in the days of Noah. And again, that's then likely referring to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, speaking of angels who, in in there it's described the sons of God, who they disobeyed God by taking women as their wives. I know that's weird, and that's another, you know, obscure passage in Scripture. But the fact is, those fallen angels then became part of the demonic realm. They were punished. They became part of the demonic realm, and in fact, they were imprisoned by God as punishment, and now they await their final doom. And the New Testament speaks of this in a couple other places. Jude chapter 6 talks about these fallen angels. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Peter's going to address it again in his second letter, 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 
And that's in the context of he's talking about he's definitely not going to spare these false teachers that are bothering you guys. So what I believe he's saying here, Christ in his resurrected and glorified state proclaimed his victory over these fallen angels. He proclaimed his victory over the demonic realm. And it's just a reminder to us of that, of that glorious truth that Jesus has already defeated Satan. Yes, right now Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he is the enemy of our souls and we need to be aware of him and, and, and mindful of that. But we stand firm in the victory of Christ. Lo, his doom is sure, the hymn says, right? He's been dealt a lethal blow. And when Christ returns, he will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And Christ already has victory over the demonic realm. Colossians 2.15 says, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's talking about the demonic realm. When Christ died and rose again, it was a victory over sin. It was a victory over death. And it was a victory over Satan himself. And what a comfort that is to know that Jesus has already defeated the enemy of our souls. And so again, getting back to what is Peter talking about here in, in our passage today. That he's talking about Christ's path was suffering, death, and glory. Suffering, death, and victory, vindication, and eternal glory. Christ's glory was on display as he proclaimed his victory to the spiritual forces of evil. And verse 22 of our passage further describes his glory. We'll come back to verse 21 in a minute, but look at 22. Speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Christ has received the ultimate vindication and glory. The risen and glorified Christ was exalted to the position of ultimate authority. Where is Jesus now? Our Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He's reigning from his throne in heaven. Christ is supreme over all other powers. Praise God. One day, he will return. Our Lord Jesus Christ will return in power and great glory and he will eradicate sin and defeat his enemies once and for all. But again, our purposes right now is to think about this path that Christ has walked. What a path it is. I mean, we could even step back and say, you know, he was the eternal son of God. He was in, in paradise and glory he humbled himself, took on a human nature, and walked this path of suffering and humiliation and mocking and even uh, being cursed by his father as he bore our sins. And, th and then he walked the path of death. But that was not the final word. His path then led to resurrection and vindication and glory, exaltation and highest authority. That's his path that Christ has walked. And here is, I mean, that's good news enough, right? But here's the good news that Peter wants suffering Christians to remember today. Jesus not only walked this path of suffering, death, and glory, but he blazed the trail for the rest of us who are united to him. 
Now because of Christ, we too are headed for glory. Loved ones, Jesus is our first fruits. He is our forerunner. By his resurrection, Jesus has begun the new creation. He has defeated sin and death. Again, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all creation was under the curse. All mankind has been subject to sin and death. But Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has reversed the curse. And he has blazed the trail into a whole new realm. The new creation. And so that's, that's our destiny. Right? We, we will be with Christ in glory. He alone will be, you know, the place of supreme honor and authority. But we will get to be in his presence. We'll get to be co-heirs with him. We'll get to even reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Loved ones, I know you're suffering now. Again, some are suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. The rest of us are, are just suffering living in a fallen world and dealing with remaining sin and But imagine, imagine living in a glorified world. Imagine living in a world where there's no more evil. There's no more temptation. There's no more rebellion to God's loving rule. There's no more brokenness or death. There's no more sin without. There's no more sin within. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine living in a glorified body and soul with no more pain, no more weakness. Again, no more indwelling sin, no more death. That's our future. That's the future of every person who's united to Christ. That is our future because Christ has defeated sin and death. What a beautiful passage this is. All creation was under the shackles of the curse. But Christ has broken those shackles. He has burst open the prison doors of this fallen world of pain and suffering. He has blazed a trail into a whole new realm of glory. A whole new perfect existence where we will enjoy each other and the beauty of God's presence forever. That's the trail he has blazed for us. That's our future, loved ones, because of Christ. Jesus has won the victory. And so, yes, our lives involve suffering and death now, but glory is coming because Christ has blazed that trail. I think we could stop right there, but, but just to be thorough, let's consider verse 21. We've considered the, the path that Christ blazed, and now in verse 21 we see the picture God gives. The picture God gives. And you can write this in your notes. Baptism reminds us that through our union with Christ, we too are headed for glory. Baptism reminds us that through our union with Christ, we too are headed for glory. 
Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now again, a little trickiness here, right? Taken by itself, it might sound like Peter's saying baptism saves us. But we know that's not true because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And Peter can't be saying that the act of baptism saves us because he's just been explaining in verse 18 that our salvation is accomplished through the sacrificial death of Jesus who was raised and vindicated over all the evil powers. And plus, we know the rest of the Bible is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what baptism does do is a couple of things, right? Baptism is our public way of identifying with Christ. And baptism pictures what God has done in saving us. And and that's the picture that Peter's giving us here. Right? We know other passages talk about this. How baptism pictures, like in Romans 6, baptism, baptism pictures how uh, our old self that lived in rebellion to God and was a slave to sin has died. And now a new self that's free from the enslaving power of sin has been raised with Christ and talks about our union with Christ. And here in verse 21, Peter is teaching that baptism is a picture of God's rescue of repentant sinners from the floodwaters of his judgment and into new life in Christ. Right? So we, we rejoice when someone is baptized because it, it public, they're publicly identifying with Christ. It's, it's a way of us rejoicing. God in his grace has saved them. And it's a reminder to all of us of what God has done in saving us. Yes, a new self has been raised. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Yes, I've been cleansed from my sins. And here we have another picture to, to go along with that whenever we see a baptism. I have been rescued from the floodwaters of God's judgment. Remember, Peter was just referring to Noah, right, when he was talking about the fallen angels. So I guess you could say he kind of has Noah on the brain, right? (laughs) Well, what happened in Noah's time? God's judgment, right? The flood destroyed the wicked. The flood destroyed everybody except Noah's family and the animals on the ark. The water brought God's judgment on sin. The water brought death. But Noah and his family were brought through the water of God's judgment. And in a sense, it was kind of like a shadowy way, you could say they were brought into new life, weren't they? And so baptism is a picture that this has happened to us too, all of us who are united to Christ. We have been saved already from the penalty of God, of, of, of our sin. We know that because we've been declared righteous. We know that there's no condemnation. But when that will manifest itself, I guess, or when we'll, we'll see that, I guess, will be when Christ returns and God's judgment, God's wrath is poured out on sinners. Oh, how we will rejoice in that day that we were spared, that we were brought through, that we were protected and saved from God's judgment. 
And just as God saved Noah and his family from judgment through the floodwaters, baptism reminds us it's a picture of our salvation from, if you will, the floodwaters of God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus. The waters of baptism, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus, again, that union with Christ's language. Waters of baptism demonstrate that we are united to Christ. We are baptized with Christ. And Christ himself emerged from, again, if you want to keep using that picture of waters, he emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. And because we have been united with Christ through faith, baptism pictures our salvation from God's judgment through Christ's resurrection. What a reminder of God's mercy, of God's grace, of Christ's saving work to be saved from God's judgment. Loved ones, we can look back at our baptism. And again, we're having a baptism class coming up. You know, there's some people that want to get baptized. And whenever we we see someone uh, follow follow Christ in obedience through the waters of baptism, we can remember our baptism. And we can remember, God in his grace and mercy has saved me through Christ. And I love how it says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism reminds us. Again, these are all pictures. It reminds us of what God has done in us through his spirit. That Christ has cleansed us from all of our sins. That our conscience no longer condemns us. And when Satan accuses us, we can say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, my sins are many, but his mercy is more. I am cleansed. I am forgiven. God has declared me righteous on account of Christ. And so then as Hebrews 10.22 says, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Even as we struggle with sin, now we have full assurance because of the finished work of Christ. We can look back at our baptism And we can look forward to what it pictures. That we have and will one day pass through judgment and enjoy glory with Christ. Because Jesus has died the death we deserved and he has given us resurrection life. So I've said it many times. But again, baptism doesn't save us. It's just a beautiful picture and a powerful reminder that Christ has saved us. That when Christ returns to judge his enemies, we will escape that judgment. And oh, my non-Christian friends who are here today. This is a reminder to us of the truth of what God's word says. That there is a coming day of judgment. God in his kindness is patiently holding back his judgment for now. He's giving people time to repent. He's giving people time to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior because it is Jesus alone who delivers us from the wrath to come. The floodwaters of God's judgment are being held back by the the dam, if you will, of of his patience. To give people time to repent. So the question you have to ask yourself. And that I ask you now. Have you 
repentant? Have you run to Christ to be saved from the coming judgment of God? One day, our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits now in a place of ultimate authority, one day Christ will return and the flood of God's judgment will sweep over this whole world. And only those who have trusted in Christ alone as Savior and Lord will be saved. And so if you've not trusted in Christ, I ask you, and not in a, in a snarky way at all, but I ask you, what is your plan of surviving the coming waters of God's judgment? How will you survive on that day? How will you survive when you stand before God? Will you try to run to the high ground of your good works? Right? If we're picturing God's flood, flood of judgment coming, metaphorically. Will you try to run to the high ground of your good works? Will you try to cling to the driftwood of going to church and believing in God? None of those things will save you from the flood of God's judgment. The only way to be saved is through faith in Christ. Jesus suffered and died to save sinners like you and like me. So I urge you to admit your sin today. To turn from, from living life apart from Christ and to turn to Christ and trust in him alone for your forgiveness. Turn from trying to save yourself Turn from, from living for yourself and by faith embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. And you too will have the, the peace and assurance of knowing that you will be saved from that coming judgment. So we'll, just in, in summary here then, what is Peter doing? He's wanting his suffering Christian readers to remember what Christ has done, to look back at their baptism, remember how Christ has saved them, to remember that the path that Christ has blazed for them, that he suffered. He suffered terribly, just like many of them and many of you are or will be suffering terribly. But by his death, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And he rose from the dead in victory and was vindicated over his enemies and exalted to the highest place. And, and in so doing, he has blazed that same trail for us by securing our salvation. He has defeated our enemies. He has initiated the new creation. Because Christ has blazed the trail of suffering, death, and glory, we know that our suffering and death is temporary. It will not be the last word. Right? Death will... If we should die before Christ returns, death will merely usher us into paradise with Jesus. Where we'll start to experience the blessings of our inheritance. And one day we'll be, our bodies will be raised from the dead. And we'll enjoy the eternal glory of reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So take heart, Christians. I know we get weary of battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Christ has won the victory. And as you suffer now with disease 
and impending death. Rejoice in the truth that glory is coming. As you suffer now with the constant struggle of of remaining sin and a distracted heart, rejoice that glory is coming. As you suffer now the ridicule and persecution for the name of Christ, rejoice that glory is coming. So keep abiding in Christ. Keep clinging to Christ. Keep living for Christ. Keep testifying about Christ. Keep longing for Christ. Because glory is coming. Yes, we follow Christ now down a road of suffering and death. But it is a road that leads to glory. Suffering now. But glory is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for your suffering. Thank you for willingly laying down your life on the cross, willingly taking our sin, willingly becoming a curse for us, being forsaken by your Father that we might be forgiven, that we might become the righteousness of God. We praise you that you have fully paid for the sins of all who believe and that you have conquered sin, death, and evil, that you have conquered this fallen realm and initiated the new creation. We praise you that you are exalted now to the highest place. And we praise you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Show your power now. Show your sovereign grace now by conquering dead and rebellious hearts. Show them your glory and grant them faith to believe in you. And thank you for blazing that trail for us. A trail that leads to glory. Please comfort those who are suffering now. Give them grace to persevere through their times of of suffering. Give them grace to remain faithful. Remind us all of the victory that you have won and encourage us with the truth that you are coming again and that glory is coming for us. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand, please? Grab your hymnals. We'll sing a final song of of praise. Number 212, Glorious Day.